I'm Tessie Ojo. I'm Chief Executive of the Diana Ward. Hello, I'm Polly Neat and I'm Chief Executive of Shelter. And together we are hosting a mini-series on the word privilege. This is our second episode of our mini podcast with myself, Tessie Ojo and Polly. And today we are really pleased to have a special guest, Stephen. Welcome. Tell us who you are, please. Thank you very much. So um, Stephen Hale, really pleased to be with you to have this conversation. Uh, For the past six years, I have been the chief executive of Refugee Action, a UK charity that uh, supports refugees and asylum seekers in the UK and works with them to, to defend their rights, which are under considerable attack. I've very recently finished that role, so I'm now working on international climate change. I'm just going to kick off with my first question. So you know that this podcast is all about privilege. And one of the things that Polly and I love to find out from people is, how do you use your privilege as a leader, and whether yourself personally or your organisation to make change happen? How also, one of the things we're increasingly aware of that this is not going to be a quick win. It's not a sprint, it's a marathon and it's a slow process. But how do, we, how do we go on this journey? So I just this is just an open question to you, just to talk, talk to us a little bit about how you use your privilege as a leader to make change happen. Well, before I sort of answer as a leader, let me say something you know, personally about privilege which is that, you know, I have lived a life of extraordinary opportunity. My dad was in the British Council. I lived abroad for for most of my young life. I was then, like many young kids, deposited in boarding school. Uh, So I had the benefit of a, you know, international experience and insight and also obviously a public school education. Uh, And I've come from a stable family. I'm a white man. Clearly, you know, there, there are many layers to my privilege. I think the language of privilege is something that's now becoming mainstream in conversation. But I would say that throughout my life, I have felt, always felt, you know, an incredible awareness. Just even when I was a teenager, I remember, you know, people talking about the accident of birth, you know, that the one thing that is truly transformational to your prospects as a human being on this planet is where you're born and to who. I do feel that's always kind of been with me, part of my identity part of my understanding of the world in in which I live I have a sort of pin board next to me in this office and there's a piece of paper that I wrote in February 1996 25 years ago and sort of two lines you know about the responsibility that I have because of the injustice that there is in the world and because of the, the opportunities that I've had so I do feel that I've had an awareness of this really throughout my life for whatever reason before I knew necessarily the language that we now use sometimes to, to talk about these issues so I guess did, did your that's parents, just to situate it personally just to pick up on that just for a minute because I'm very did your parents encourage you in that because I too uh, came from a, a very privileged background but people I know who share my background are not always aware of their privilege actually at all otherwise we'd be living in a completely different society wouldn't we and a much better one my dad always used to say you're not special you're just lucky and he would always be really make us aware of the unearned privilege that we had 
that's not to say that, oh God, I've had to learn uh, that over and over and over again, and I still remind myself of it continually. But I just wondered with you, you know, were you sort of similarly brought up to at least have some inkling of the responsibilities that went with that privilege? Or did you kind of work that out no, I th- all by yourself? My, my parents weren't born in the same situation, you know, so like my parents didn't go to public yeah, school, no, my neither. dad didn't go to university. So therefore, they brought me up saying oh wow we can go on this holiday I never did this when I was a kid oh wow we can do this when I was a kid you know the toilet was at the bottom of the garden so I think they held a recognition of their own journey and progress and the opportunities they now had so there was a lot of that kind of kind of conversation and again you know if you go to I went to the British school in Islamabad you know that was a primary school you know um, my parents met and got married in Nigeria so when you live in different countries you do obviously you, you you cannot be unaware of the extraordinary um, wealth and comfort in, w- in which you're living by comparison to people around you. I mean that, that's just impossible. Well, I say it's impossible. Of course, many people. Uh, do I don't think it's at all don't impossible. Remain conscious of that, yeah. but certainly it had a searing effect on me for sure. That's really interesting. I think Polly and I explored this even, I think, one of the earlier series as well around recognition of your own personal privilege and how you almost pass that on to your children to help them understand that with this privilege comes responsibilities. I suppose bringing that back to us as sector leader and for you, maybe bringing back to that question is how do we, knowing what you know, knowing that there's privilege and there's um, injustice, how do we use that platform to create change? How have you used that platform to create change? Well, there's so many dimensions to it, you know? And of course, one dimension to it is to say, well, I know the world is unjust and I'm gonna look for opportunities to use my skills and my experience and my privilege to counter that injustice. That's a choice we make about what we do with with our time. But obviously that's not about, once you've made that choice, you then sort of move to the next set of questions around how you play that role and how you carry that recognition and that understanding into whatever organisation that, that you're working in. And like everybody else, I hold extraordinary humility in thinking about that. I guess the thing I would say is each of us has got to find our own place in that and each organisation has got to find their place in it. For Refugee Action, for the place that you know I've been working at for many years, the most tangible way in which we've addressed that privilege is that we've sought obviously to counter the extraordinary lack of power and agency which people have who are trapped in the asylum system whose rights aren't respected who are banned from working who are living on five pound 40 a day and so thinking about both the work that we do but also trying to center empowerment in the way that we go about that and trying to recognize that the role we play as an organization is not simply the support we give to people in a practical sense, whether it's advice or financial support or whatever, but it's how we empower them, how we build their agency, how we recognize them as people, strengthen them to be their own advocates. So that's the most obvious way in which our organization is responding to the chronic lack of power, power which, which exists for the people for whom, uh, you know, for whom we're there to serve. That's really interesting. There's a couple of things you've said there about empower and build agency. There's a, you know, one of the things I think Polly and I had talked about recently is there's a sense of denial 
around privilege. You know, a lot of people would say, actually, I'm not privileged. I, I've struggled all of my life. You've just described your, your own parents who have worked incredibly hard all of their life to provide the life that they gave to you guys. What do you say to that? Because I, mean, I think it's quite obvious that when you see, you can just take a snapshot of what's happening now. A, a female is, 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 is killed. And it's obviously that crime is done by a man and suddenly you get all, all men trending on Twitter. How do we come to a place where we understand our own privilege? Because if we don't come to that, almost the ability, to, the sense of knowing that we need to empower and build agency will just never happen. So how do we as a, as a society even just come to a place that to understand that we all have some degree of privilege? And just building on that question, do you think that charity sector leaders have a particular responsibility to play a role in that national conversation, if you like? Lots of questions and many well, possible, yeah, answers, many possible answers to all Very of them. Very simple, obviously. I have a deeply ingrained tendency to look optimistically at any situation. So let me first say that there is more conversation going on about privilege, surely, than there has been, and more recognition of privilege than there has been by comparison to previous times. We should, we should take some hope from that. Secondly, I think that there are also many traps in how we take that conversation to the next level, because we are unfortunately in a situation where large parts of government, large parts of the media, want to trap us in a narrative where they are absolutely denying, for instance, of, of you know, of, of structural racism as a concept and wanting to take us back, not forward. You know, absolutely. I read, you know, Marina Hyde's columns are always, you know, very searing, but there's one, you know, she wrote this week saying in, in the latest bill, which is before Parliament, you, you could get longer in jail by for tearing down a statue than mm. you could for attacking a woman, right? So on the one hand, as I said, I hold on to that optimism about the fact that we are having this conversation more but also we've got to find ways to draw more people into this conversation without getting caught in traps, which I do think are being laid for us. So I, I found that the whole, um, the government really focusing on, obviously as a response to Black Lives Matter, um, stopping people from tearing down statues, i.e. Uh, visibly reevaluating our imperial heritage at the same time as, you know, we're seeing um, not all men coming up and, um, and the, everything that's reacted to Sarah Everard's murder, that those two, the, the juxtaposition of those two things, I feel for us as a sector, it's also no coincidence that, you know, charities are being criticised for getting into sort of cultural debates that are nothing to do with their core purpose. When, to me, I feel that to talk about women's position in society to reevaluate imperialism and our heritage as a country and to actively promote anti-racism those are core to shelter's purpose actually and I just wondered what your response was to that whether you think because at refugee action you're absolutely at the sharp end aren't you of institutional and systemic racism in, in a way as we are in housing how do you feel about that as a leader and your need personally to have a voice on those issues? 
let's just close out the piece around the politics of it and how as charity leaders we respond to it and then I'll come to the yeah. action yeah. so I think in relation to the politics I mean you said it's not an accident that charity has been caught in this issue I mean you are very very right it is not an accident I mean we've got the culture secretary hauling in heritage bodies to exactly. tell them how they should behave and how they should research and communicate their own history I mean, that is not an accident. That, that is, again, a trap that is being set, a political play that is being made in a way that's absolutely about taking us backwards around those issues and around understanding our history. I think, though, it is really important for us, again, this is just basic communication and campaign strategy, not to be caught in those traps, but to work out the stories that we want to tell yeah. and the messages that we want to amplify. I can certainly say that in relation to our work at Refugee Action. There is a story that the Home Secretary wants to tell about refugees and asylum seekers. Exactly. And, and it's deeply regressive, deeply yeah. inhumane. And we are not going to be caught in a trap purely of reacting to that. We're going to tell a different story because we need to demonstrate that there is broad support, mainstream support for a compassionate asylum system which recognises all that people have been through and, you know, build support for Britain being, being a welcoming and a humane country. And we can't win that argument by responding to her narrative because it, it is deeply poisoned. Yeah. So I think we've got to have the confidence to tell our own stories, not be trapped in these plays that are being made by various people in government and in the media. I think to come to refugee action, I'm really proud of the journey that the organization went on over the past few years not from the outset of my time as chief executive to be really clear about that but in the second half perhaps you know in the, because we really did seek to center in our strategy and in our work a commitment to shifting power to refugees and people seeking asylum we worked through what we thought that meant we took advice from other organizations who've been trying to do that from within the sector and outside and we have sought of course to diversify our board also our staff team, but most fundamentally to shift power in the way that we make decisions in how we operate, to build independent groups of people seeking asylum, to connect with different parts of the organisation to influence them, but then also now at more at a governance level. So I'm really proud of that journey. Obviously, there is a long way to go, but I think it's been incredible to see how that has built and what incredible leaders emerge from that process people who are still trapped in that asylum system but are hugely influential in our organization and beyond so i'm proud of that work but i'm not proud of our failure to tackle issues of structural racism prior to early 2020 so there's an intersection obviously between those two issues but they're very different issues right so we focus very much on building the proportion of our staff who have been through the asylum process who have refugee status but we didn't focus on the experience of people who are born non-white in the UK and we didn't look at we didn't consistently look at the issues that face our clients through the lens of structural racism and we should have done so for instance time and time and time again people who engage with the NHS who are asylum seekers are not offered interpreting. And we've advocated on that, we've campaigned on that, we deal with it obviously case by case, but we've also dealt with it at a systemic level. We've never called, we never, in the past, we wouldn't have called that out for what it is, which is systemic yeah. racism. We were working on issues that had a racist dimension, but not understanding them in that way. 
I think we've been in the same place, actually, that we, uh, and about um, other dimensions of inequality as well, actually, but just naming it for what it is, mm. I feel, is so important in all of our causes right across the sector. It's really important to name the racism within the housing system. And, and actually the fact that when we talk about homeless families, what we actually mean is single mothers, women and their children, and within that disproportionately women of color and their children. And it's really important, I, I feel, that we name those impacts of systemic racism in all of our causes right across the sector. Um, Look, there are a thousand examples, unfortunately, that we could trade, but you know, one would be, Again, we have a Home Secretary who's very passionate about domestic violence, like talks about those issues a lot. Now, we all know, obviously, the chronic failures and sources of our own funding and solutions and advocacy. But within the asylum system, you, you, you try raising the fact that you are a victim of domestic violence within the asylum system. I mean... No, I know. Yeah, words fail me, really. So there are really, really profound issues which we've been grappling with. But as I said, we haven't looked at them I think consistently, through, we, we definitely didn't look at them consistently through that lens. And so the journey that we've been on over the past year is to try, on the one hand, to build confidence and trust in, within our staff team that this is now a conversation we want to have about structural racism, about what it means for the way we deliver services, what it means for the, our communications, what it means for our campaigning, but also not to place that burden on people in our staff group. Because, you know, we have leadership responsibilities. I'm the chief executive. We have a leadership team. They lead on everything else and they should be leading on this too. So we've been trying to sort of build those, take those two sort of directions in parallel. And there's obviously tension between them. You know, we should be cracking on. We're in charge. But equally, we need to give confidence and space and voice to people in the organisation to begin to air their experiences and frustrations when we hadn't given them an opportunity to do that in the past. Actually, this whole journey allows us to call things the way they, they are and stop making excuses for the system. The system is structurally racist and the only way we can fix it is constantly call it out. If we look at, for example, the healthcare system, this is why you have more people of color in the mental health services yeah. or in prisons because of a, a, a system that's not culturally competent and that's something we need to fix. I suppose in some ways, Stephen, if I'm taking one of the things you said, which I completely agree with, is about hope. We have to have hope because without hope, there's no, we, we can't be yeah. here. I suppose looking at, coming from a hope perspective, what would you say is next for our sector in terms of anti-racism what should we be doing what should we be where should we be going as a sector so many organizations are now grappling with these issues right with the best of intentions we are working brilliantly with an organization called brap that's provided training both for all our staff also training on our, with our leaders and you can imagine that organizations like them are now pretty good, hard to get hold of because everybody wants to have this conversation with them and I can only imagine now that feels a bit ironic to them. But anyway, I do think we hardly need to hold on to that positive. But for me, the question should be, how do we sustain it? That, yeah. That's the issue. Because our society, let's be honest, goes through these cycles, right? Yeah. There's an academic piece of work on this, which I still have it, you know, somewhere in the mm. study, the, the issue attention cycle. People discover an issue. There's a first phase that people call false euphoria. But they go, oh, this is a big problem. Something should be done. 
And then they dip when they realise how complicated it is. Exactly. But hopefully you pull them through. So I think the the question should be asking ourselves is how can we sustain that momentum and how can we keep our ambitions high as we go on that journey? Because inevitably, oxygen tends to slowly come out of the balloon, basically. So we've got to do that. And I think one of just taking that back down to very practical level in terms of the work we're doing in refugee action one thing that i observed just use the present tense it should be the past the work, the work we were doing at refugee action is that i feel that the expectations of some of our staff people who led the working group that was established were very low hmm. and it's not surprising that they were low because we hadn't gone on this journey we hadn't made this commitment and so when things began to happen people would say oh it's great that you're looking at x or y and I felt that part of my role as a chief executive was to say, it's not that great, is it? I mean, yeah. you know, we should have been doing this like six years ago and I'm the chief exec. So everybody needs to be raising their expectations of one another. We as leaders need to be giving space to people in our organisations to say, challenge us constructively about where we want to go or, or unconstructively. There's a lot of anger that they need to play out. And, and so we give them that space and then we challenge ourselves as well. So I think raising expectations and thinking about how we sustain this is really important. And I, and I would definitely want to credit Akivo in this because they were doing this work before the spring of 2020. And, you know, this does come down to really personal decisions and personal accountability. I remember when the Akivo statement came out, I remember reading the whole thing and then thinking, well, we're doing all this work on shifting power. I'm not going to focus on this right now. We make those decisions and we need to stop making that kind of decision. Totally and So. You know, that's definitely, at the end of the day, whether you challenge privilege, whether you challenge racism, comes down to really personal decisions about what you choose to put Mm. your time into, who you choose to listen to, what conversations you hold. We've got to sustain that. That, That's the trick. And things like the Akivo statement, things, organisations like Akivo can help us to stretch out and say, well, let's all come back together a year from now and say, well, where are we doing and who's delivering, you know? So I think that those are the big, those are the challenges, and I do think sector bodies can play a role in making sure we all retain that kind of horizon in terms of our commitment to this. You know, I completely agree. I think when we did the first series of podcasts, we thought that's it, we're going to do that, and that's it. The reason we came back to another three is because we recognise that that if we don't keep the momentum, then everything we will forget because that's how life happens. Mm-hmm. And that honesty, keeping this honest conversation going between leaders. And I, I thought you were incredibly honest then, Stephen, where you actually talked about a decision that you'd made, and I can think of ones I've made as well, to actively deprioritize this conversation in the past. And to me, it is about recognizing that those decisions have been taken, that we as leaders are accountable for those, and to make different decisions and keep making them so that we're constantly reinforcing this challenge. Uh, within our organisations and I would say within society and the wider sector as well. One thing I wanted to ask you about is, so we keep challenging, we need to keep challenging our own decision making. One of the things that I think a lot of leaders struggle with is the long-term change nature of this Mm. and the fact that as leaders sometimes we want to find a solution and sort something out and then be able to go, right, I've sorted that. But this is absolutely not like that. And I just wondered if you have any 
uh, experience or kind of ideas about how we deal with that as leaders and how we how we know we're on the way. How do we maintain accountability for change when change is of necessity long term and quite complex? The privilege that we're discussing and the injustices which that, that privilege leads to are, are centuries old. So <laughs> we, we will uh, hope still be having this conversation, if I can put it that way, you know, when, when I'm nearly dead and gone. But I do think if I say within refugee action, there's incredible momentum to the work around shifting power. OK, so now I know that's one aspect of this, but the voices that it unlocks, the people whose agency has been has been built, do create momentum and they're making the charity better in many, many different ways. And they're also making it a more exciting place to work. Like everybody is, in a sense, empowered and excited by the way in which our organisation has has shifted power and, and is obviously committed to continuing to do so. So. In that respect, I wouldn't say like energy drops off, that if you go on that journey, it can also build momentum. But what I've already then done is sort of go down one of one line of inquiry. And I guess that's the issue with this conversation is that it has so many different potential lines of inquiry, right? So, you know, there'll be periods where people are looking at issues more through a lens of gender, more through a lens of racism. Who knows, maybe we'll be sitting here in two years and you're saying we really need to talk about public schools now. Like, you know, there, there are many layers to unravelling privilege and you would be extraordinary if any organisation was able to consistently advance on all fronts. So we are, it, there is going to be a certain unevenness to it. But what we're doing now is potentially kind of reframing or what this podcast is helping to do too is reframing the breadth of that conversation as being around about privilege, not just being about one of those issues. That's a big step. Absolutely. I, I think for this, I, I suppose in some way what we're trying to is to keep in our foot on the ideology. It's that ideology, as long as we keep chipping at it gradually, we it will we will unpick the different areas in which that those ideologies are manifested. So in the health, in it might like you like you've said, it might be around what's what does our privilege afford us that maybe um, doesn't afford another person? And just the constant unraveling of that. And like we said at the start, it's a journey, it's a marathon, and hopefully we can pass the baton on to the next generation and they will have a whole new different set of challenges to unpick. But I think we have, I think I hear what you're, we're all saying in this conversation is we have a responsibility to keep going. We need to make ourselves accountable. We need to constantly challenge ourselves and just always raise that expectation of ourselves as leaders to drive change. And maintain that hope that Stephen, you talked about, you know, you said that you've got, I, I can't remember your exact words, but it's something about basically you're an optimistic character. That is your personality. And I definitely identify with that. So I'm like that as well. Um, and I think that's, that is really important, having that hopeful mindset, because if you have a lot of privilege, then at the very least, you've got a responsibility to be hopeful and positive, I feel anyway, you know, because what well, A, it's central to leadership, but also it's much easier to be like that if you have a lot of privilege. I'm a hopeful person because it feels like the best way to live. <laughs> I mean, surrounding yourself by anger and negative touch points around things that are happening around you is, is hard to hold you know there's definitely an opportunity to look at look at things that way but I think it's harder to hold and I think it's more motivating and more energizing and draws more people in if we can talk about 
the difference we're making and the change we're making and the journey that we're going on, how things will be better if, if we do this, if we tackle these issues together. Okay, and I do think we're having this conversation a lot more. There was an important moment in my career when I worked for Oxfam, was a, the global director of Oxfam was an incredible woman called uh, Winnie Bianyema. And she, she brought all the um, sort of top hundred or so people of Oxfam together in, in Delhi. And she stood in the middle of the room, and she looked around and she said, look, there are too many white men in this room, she said, and the future of Oxfam is less of you. And, and then she looked around again, she said, well, to be more specific, too many white British men, she said. <laughs> Brilliant. So, so she really centred me. Uh, <laughs> she wasn't scared of being challenging, was she? <laughs> she, was, she was never scared. She is never scared. But uh, she was right. She put it out there. That's <laughs> I, I, one of the stories we like to kind of almost begin to wrap up with is to share any good. I know you've given loads of great examples from refugee, but I wondered if you had any other examples to share. Something that's really exciting, you've seen that's innovative, something that's really anti-racist, that people listening can say, oh my goodness, I want to do that. First of all, I'd say like one thing we've done over in Refugee Action over the past year, which is in relation to how we were empowering people who are in the asylum process to, to influence the organisation, is that we've established a, a steering group and it's made up of people that are already active in the organisation. They might be active as campaigners or people trying to influence our services and giving us feedback in particular locations. But we supported that group to come together. They elected their own leadership. Uh, we've invested a little bit of time and money in giving them really strong training. They probably, to be honest, had better training on governance than my board. And as a result, they just became incredibly confident and articulate to come into our annual board residential in January and to say, look, this is where we want the organisation to do. This is what we want to see you doing. So I feel like it's brought people from across, as I said, obviously many nationalities, different bits of the country, and, you know, actually working virtually has helped all of that process, I think. And, you know, there's, there's no going back. And I think, again, there's momentum in that because now four of our 10 board members have been through the asylum process, that group then joins... Yeah, they're becoming the majority in that in that conversation at that moment between the board and the group. So I certainly think, again, all work in progress. And there are many issues it throws up when you're asking people to commit a lot of time and energy when actually you can't reward them because you're legally banned from paying them for working right now. So there are loads of issues around it, but I think it has been for everyone involved really exciting. I love your thing about there's no going back. Surely that's what we have to hold as leaders. Yeah. We've we have been on a journey over the past year we should have been on it earlier I think we all accept that but now we've got to be really clear that there's no going back absolutely I said to someone recently actually I think I was in a presentation and someone said to me what keeps you awake at night and I said I can't unhear what I've heard we held a campaign that brought young people together. It was a campaign was called Young and Black, and we did it in partnership with UK Youth. And young and black people shared their experiences of being young and black in the UK. One of the words that still haunts me to today is a young person who said, "Being young and black in the UK is a roller coaster. It's like a roller coaster." And so in a whole different setting, when someone said to me, what keeps me awake at night? I said, I just can't unhear that. And that's the thing that drives me. How can you, having heard all we, we've heard, and if your motivation for being in this sector is to create change, why would you sit back and do nothing? On that note, 
<laughs> do you have any parting words for us? <laughs> First, you know, thank you to both of you for this invitation and for the leadership you're both showing on this issue and, the, you know, the insight we'll be giving people who have listened to these podcasts. I think the last thing I would just say is that having centred this problem at this point, and recognising that, as Polly just said, you know, we, we could and should have done it long ago. It's really important that we sustain momentum, but it's really important also that we internally, we need to sustain momentum. Externally, we also need to sustain momentum, but also on our terms, by telling this story in ways that is going to engage people and work with them, not by jumping into traps which are being set for us. So if we're going to build people's understanding and capacity to have this conversation in its many different dimensions, we need to do it by telling it our way, not by being caught in other people's frames. Thank you so much. It's been so lovely. Thank you for sharing your heart with us. Thank you both. <laughs>